Good morning. Well, it's been a long week at uh, the Venema Ranch. Tuesday, Shelly and our nephew Judah drove to Modesto to pick up her parents and return to Visalia, bringing Fred and Naomi Wilder here to live. Shelly drove her mom in our car, and Judah drove her dad in their family car. And this uh, caravan left their home at the corner of Hart and Bacon Roads, their ranch, once 60 acres with two homes, the ranch on which Fred was born, the home that Fred and his father Charles built together, the home where on June 30th, 1973, I drove for the first time with a bouquet of daisies a borrowed convertible MGTR4 and a picnic basket of home fried chicken and homemade potato salad to take to Shelley on our first date to meet her father and meet her mother and meet her three sisters as a fine young man should on a first date a date I hoped would not be our last. And if you hang around to the end of this message, I'll let you know how that all turned out. <laughs> but that home and that ranch where Grandfather Charles Wilder died on his tractor in the midst of disking weeds between the rows of grapevines, that ranch where Fred grew up milking the cows and even as an adult, that ranch where three generations, five branches of children, children's children, extended family and grandchildren with even some great-grandchildren, those branches gathered for holidays and reunions at that ranch, times innumerable. And that ranch, on Tuesday, they left in two cars. And I'm wondering, and I've been wondering all week, as they made their way down that long driveway and turned onto Bacon Road, and then again onto Hart Road, if they looked back, if they reflected or even realized that perhaps, that most likely, they would never set eyes on that ranch again. There's a finality to life. Our toil, our investments of time and energy, of life, it comes to an end. 
if we weigh the fruit of our life's work in material belongings, it's sobering to think that there will come a day when a drive will leave behind our life's work. If our life's work is just material belongings. This morning, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. It tells us something about work that's very important. And I'd like us to appreciate something extremely novel, unique, in what Paul has to say about work. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible this morning, the, the translation, because it brings out the word good. And I want to talk a little about that later on. Paul writes, Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. You may recall, by the way, the word there no longer. When we were in Philemon, Paul used that same word, no longer. No longer in Greek. We learned it was uketi. Uh, it means no longer. No more. No further. Hidden in this verse are three approaches to getting, to having. And you could say even three approaches to work. I want to share them with you. The first is you can steal in order to get. That's the first approach. The second is you can work in order to get. You can work in order to have. The first is illegal. The second is legal. And the third, you can work in order to give. And this is generosity. Number three, that third notion of getting or having, not stealing, which is illegal, not working, which is legal, just to have, but working in order to give. That approach to work comes from a very different place, a very different point of view. And that difference is Jesus Christ. Paul is saying Jesus alters our purpose for living and our purpose for work. In fact, we are to work not to get, but to live and give because in Christ our life is a work of grace. 
Our life in Christ is a work of grace, and that changes everything. This, of course, is a totally different orientation to work and to life than I was raised with and that I was trained in by my father. My father raised me to work and to work hard. In fact, as a young, young man, I mean, I wanted first a G.I. Joe. That was when they were kind of big, like bigger than Barbie. And, uh, and then I wanted a bike, but I had, to, I had to work. I was given specific chores. I was allowed to save. And with work came kind of an, an economics, my father's economics. For example, money doesn't grow on trees, he would say, all the time. And I wished it would, of course, but it doesn't, and I had to earn it. He would also say, son, there is no free lunch. Or, son, a dollar saved is a dollar earned. He would also say to me, don't just stand there, give me a hand. Or, son, don't wait to be asked, and always do more than you're asked. But my dad would say, son, everything I have, I've earned. Everything I have, I've had to earn. This world will give you only what you make of it. Expect nothing, and you'll never be disappointed. Well, that's a very different orientation to the way of verse 28. Work to give. And it all changed for me when, in a manner of speaking, Jesus walked by and said, follow me. And I did. But it was hard to follow Jesus with the things that were so much a part of my upbringing, so much a part of the fabric of my way of seeing and living in this world. So I want us to appreciate the different framework or fabric of this verse, verse 28. I, want, I wish we could go to the very beginning of Ephesians and read all the way and just kind of take it all in and then just come to verse 28. But what we, we can do is look at chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. This is instructive. I'm going to put it on the screen for us in case you don't have your Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I've, I've mentioned to you in the past that the letters of Paul were originally written in the Greek language. And we can actually read, I mean, if we know Greek, we can read Paul's letters in the Greek language. And when we come to this part right here where it says that no one may boast, in the Greek, no one means no one. No exception. 
You are not exempt, and I am not exempt. We cannot claim any merit or any bit of work by which we achieved what Paul is saying is ours only as a gift, only as an act of God's grace, His generosity, His favor. It's, it's not your pedigree. It's not how you were born. It's not who you know. It's not your style of dress or your good looks. It, it's not your degrees or the status of your job or the amount of your portfolio and bank account. It's not your trophies earned in school or through athletics or in terms of your academic pursuits. No one, no one deserved what God has poured out generously and freely because of His love, and it is called grace because it is free. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It is only given. And because of that, verse 10 says, we who are the recipients of this grace by faith, we are His workmanship. We are the product of His creation in Jesus Christ. And what is it for? It is for good works, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God-powered stuff through Jesus Christ. And I want us to look again at verse, verses 22, 23, and 24 of chapter 4, which come just before verses 25, 26, 27, 28, and the rest of the chapter, because it's all predicated on something that is shown to us in most practical terms in verses 22, 23, and 24. And I've given them to you in short, but I'm going to read them from Paul's letter. He has told us that we have been taught in Christ, and then in verse 22, he says, to put off the old self. And you may recall, remarkable about that is that we have a choice. We can put off the old self. Those who are not in Christ have no option. They have no new self to put on. They have no spirit of the mind to be renewed. And so this is really profound stuff. This is at the core of who we are in Christ, this new humanity. And we are to put off our old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So now we're not captive, you see, to these desires. There's a new sheriff in town at work within us in and through the Holy Spirit. 
which is what he brings up in verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put off, put on, excuse me, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is why Paul doesn't stop with these, uh, so to speak, inferred versions of work. One, where you steal to get what you want to have to get, which is illegal. Or number two, you work to get what you have, which is legal, but you stop there, which fulfills the eighth commandment of Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. 15, thou shalt not steal, but then you're just left with kind of a legalistic capitalism. You're not left with the transformed outlook and life of Jesus Christ living through us, which is a life of grace, something the world desperately needs to encounter and something that we desperately need to live fully by faith. Working in order to get is perhaps an American ideal, but it is not the Christ-like ideal. In Christ, our life is a work of grace. So we work to give and not just to get. Verse 28 is really an amazing verse, and I'll try to show you why. Because what Paul is saying here in verse 28 is this. The thief is to become a philanthropist. The thief is to become a philanthropist. That's the kind of thing that the gospel does. Perhaps that's the most striking description of conversion in the New Testament. Verse 28. That the thief, he becomes no longer a thief, but now he works with his hands. He's a hearty laborer in every respect. And now he is a source of grace to others. He, out of his hard work, gives to others. That's about a, as beautiful a picture of what difference Jesus makes as I can imagine. I looked up what the word philanthropist meant, not in the dictionary, but in a thesaurus, which is not a species of the dinosaur. <laughs> a thesaurus functions like a dictionary, when you look up the word, instead of definition, you'll get synonyms, which uh, are words that tell you the same thing, but in different letters. And so, here are some words for a philanthropist. A helper. The thief is no longer to steal, but become a helper. Here's another one, a do-gooder. I didn't want to be a do-gooder in high school. 
Why is that? Why is that? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that, is that what, is that what becoming cool is all about? In other words, you don't do good anymore? You aren't kind, you aren't honest, you aren't fair? You're too cool for that? Is that what the whole world grows up into? Is people who shun being a do-gooder? Actually, I want to be a do-gooder. If you really want to be an individual in this world, follow Christ and be a do-gooder. Do good. The world needs good, especially when it comes from a heart of love and grace. You know what a, another synonym is for philanthropist from the thesaurus? Th- 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 is a good Samaritan. The thief should no longer thieve, but become a good Samaritan. I like that. I'd be proud to be a good Samaritan, wouldn't you? I want to take these three commands. There are three quick commands here. Do not steal, right? So, don't steal, live by faith. The second one is labor, working good with our hands. And then the third, work to get in order to give to those in need. Don't steal, live by faith. I've told you how I came to Christ. But before I came to Christ, I was a thief. Oh, I I wasn't a good thief. I was a thief of opportunity. In other words, I was just a person who would take things. A lot of us are actually like that, you know? If a... If the opportunity presents itself, we might just take something that isn't ours if we know we could get away with it. That was the kind of thief I was. But when I was a young man, probably about 18, and very rebellious, um, a man, a good Christian man, he owned a, an insulation and garage door business, and he was a member and a long family friend of my mother. And he offered me a job. He reached out to me to help give me some work. So I worked for him. I did insulation. And I worked hard. And I worked well alone. And uh, after a point, I really felt that I was working so hard and so well for him that I deserved a raise. Because there were other guys that were doing insulation on piecemeal work, and I felt that if I could do that, I could make more money. So, as a just kind of good young man, I went right to the boss and presented my case and was denied. And as a result of that denial, which I felt was unjust, I resorted to stealing gas and filling my car with gas and my gas tank with gas, my gas cans with gas, at the ranch where we would go to get our materials, there was a a gas pump. I did that for quite a while until I was caught. And then 
the owner, Mr. Skiles, was gracious enough to keep me on because I confessed and I said I wouldn't do it anymore. But he kept me on. But you know what I thought? I thought, he's kept me on because I'm cheap. You know, when you have theft in your heart, you see everything about you in the world negatively. You see things in terms of subtraction. And you justify all kinds of wrong by making other people out to be wrong. I'd say to myself, oh, he has so much, he and his wife, you know. Or his children have so much. I deserve this because I work so hard. But even when he was gracious again to me, I couldn't see the grace. I couldn't see the gift nature of what he was doing for me. He was reaching out to help me and overlooking the wrongs, wrongs of attitude and wrongs of action. And I never saw it. Of course, now you can see I see it differently. And that's because of Jesus Christ. Jesus has changed everything in my life. I see people different. I see grace in a lot of things. Don't be a person that looks at things and just does subtraction and always finds wrong. In grace, we see all the good because we see that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And God works through people in our lives, but we have to have faith to see that. We have to be touched by the very grace of God to have eyes to see grace. In my uh, 30s, when I was pastoring in South San Francisco, I was asked to speak at a college career winter camp on the subject of ethics. I did a great deal of research from Genesis to Revelation and beyond. Ethics has to do with the principles of morality, the principles of what is right and what is wrong, and why we do what is right and what is wrong. I did a great deal of research, but you know, after all, it led me down to one thing. I've got to believe in Jesus and trust him rather than follow my own desires. Remember, that's what we took off in verse 22. And we are to put on a new mindset. We are to put on Christ himself. Profoundly, back in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac, the son of promise, the one that was born to them so late in life, the son that God had told Abraham, out of this issue will come peoples and nations as vast as the stars of the sky. And Abraham with his son and a donkey and the donkey bird piled with tinder, went to the top of the mountain, and there he built a pyre, and he pushed his son on the pyre, and he followed what God had asked him to do, to sacrifice his son, and as he raised that knife, God spoke to him and showed him a ram that was to be a substitute. And then Moses, uh, Abraham named that mountain 
uh, we, call, we kind of say it this way, Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide. Or uh, Yahweh Yira in Hebrew. God will provide. The word provide translates the notion that God will see to it. God will attend to it. He will provide. Now what's important about that is that in Romans chapter 8, Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and in that eighth chapter, which is at the end of a long, wonderful, powerful argument about what God has done in Jesus Christ, in verse 32, Paul alludes to that God who provides, and he says, how shall we not free... How shall he not freely give us all things who sacrificed his own son for us? Talking about Jesus. And then he goes on to the end of the chapter to canvas all the fears and all the dangers that we could ever face. And he concludes it all with this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. With that kind of grace, you see, we should remember that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, it can alleviate those desires that we may have to commit dishonesty, thievery. It all comes down to that great moment when we believe in Jesus Christ that he will meet our needs. When I talk to that college career group, I, I talk to them story after story of, of people who are known or famous, who had all the money they needed, but they would become engaged in lifting things when they were in a store to shoplift. And they get caught, and their reputation is gone. Have you ever been tempted like that? Sure you have. If you haven't, I'm proud of you. But sometimes we think, well, I could just take this and not have to pay for it. Well, at that moment, at that moment, that's when you say, but Lord, I don't need this. I can trust it to you that if you think I should have this, you'll provide it. You'll give me the opportunity. You'll arrange it so that I can afford that. I know that sounds too simple almost, but I have spent the greater part of my life studying the Bible. I got my Bachelor of Arts in my my Bachelor of Arts with an emphasis in Bible, in the history and language of Bible. Then I went on to get my master's degree, another emphasis in the language and history of the Bible. And then I went on to get my PhD and an emphasis in the literature and the history of the Bible. I have been in the pastorate for 40 years, over 40 years. I've taught at the college and graduate level in these subjects. And do you know what it all comes down to? It comes down to that moment when you trust Jesus Christ. 
I'm not exempt because of that. I have to trust him just like you. We are to be philanthropists because of Jesus Christ. We are to be gracious and generous because of Jesus Christ. Secondly, labor, working good with our hands. The word good can be understood in several ways. I read from the New American Standard Bible because there it says producing or working the good. But you may have known in your translation, if it were the NIV or the ESV, it may use the expression honest work. So I want to tell you, this word means to work the good. But the good can function in three ways, and I want to tell you of those three ways. The first is the good can be the product of our work, as in the skill of what you produce. Second, it can be the conduct of our work, that is, in the honest quality of effort that we put into it. And third, it can be a reference to the attitude of our work, as in the mindset or the inner spirit that is behind the work itself. And so when we read, thieve no more, but rather or it is better to work with your hands and produce the good or work the good, it covers the what and the how and the why of work. And I want to ask you, how do you make, what do you make with your work? What do you make with your work? What is the product? What is the widget that you, <laughs> that you produce? Or what part do you play? What is that contribution? Is it just the money, just the paycheck? Secondly, I want to ask you, what is the conduct of your work, as in the honest quality of your effort? Uh, in other words, how do you make what you make with your work? How do you make what you make with your work? Is it good? Is the product good? And is the quality of how you make what you make good? And the third question is, why do you make what you make with your work? Why? Is it just to get, or is there some good in what comes out of it? And what is that good? And is it something that you would share and give? Paul says, as followers of Jesus Christ, it should be good, 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 and good. Christ makes a difference in the what and the how and the why. Timothy Keller uh, tells a story, he uses it in an il illustration, it always makes me think of um, some of you I know didn't grow up, but maybe you've seen uh, reruns of I Love Lucy and that there's that one where she's on an assembly line, little chocolates going by, and she can't keep up with the assembly line, so she starts stuffing the chocolates in her pockets and her mouth because she can't 
she's not able to do her job, so she's trying to get rid of him. But here in, in Timothy Keller's example, there are two women with completely identical jobs, and they're both a drudgery on an assembly line. I mean, it is just very mechanical, and you do that eight hours every day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year, and then you do it all over again. But one is hired for $30,000, and the other is hired for $30 million. And after two weeks, the woman who is on the job for 30000 says to the woman who's on the job for $30 million, but doesn't know the difference in their wages, because everything else is the same, she says, isn't this tedious? Isn't it driving you insane? Don't you want to quit? I can't take this any longer. And the other one, who happens to be whistling, says, no, I love it. It's great. And Timothy Keller says, well, what makes the difference? And of course, we all say, well, one's doing it for 30 million and the other's doing it for 30,000. That's what the difference is. But you see, the point of his illustration is not to say that we all need a good income. The point is that how we see the future changes the way we see the present. And it completely controls our experience of the present. And that's what faith in Jesus Christ does. It changes how we see our circumstances. It changes how we see our work. It changes how we see our wages. It changes everything because we are his workmanship and we have an impact in our life situation that can make a difference and has a horizon of interest and purpose that is bigger than just getting because it's about giving because we ourselves are overwhelmed by a God who loves us and shows us such grace. Certainly, Colossians 3, 23 and 24 is uh, good for us. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, an inheritance as your reward, because you are serving the Lord Christ. Good, in terms of its definition, is even defined by what follows. The last line of the verse. Work to, to get in order to give to those in need. The word to give means to share, to impart. It's clear that Paul doesn't expect us to give everything that we get, but neither do I think Paul is limiting this to just what is given. It's the spirit of all this 
that is to capture our hearts and our imagination. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, he's talking about the evil one, the devil, Satan. That enemy who prowls and devours. He calls him a thief. But Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He who was the greatest gift, John 3.16, earlier in that very same gospel, he who died between two thieves, died to save thieves, died to save us, died to change us and give us new life, that we might be people of grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. Amazement at the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As a wretch, I realize I'm entitled to nothing. But with that realization, I become grateful for everything. Grace shatters any sense of superiority. It, if we truly understand God's grace, it, it just, it does away with feelings of superiority. If you sin and your sin bothers me more than my own sin bothers me, I've lost sight of God's grace. I've lost sight of the great gift that should be compelling and propelling us every day. God has never stopped being good. We have just stopped being grateful. We must pray the prayer of George Herbert. Father, thou hast given so much to me. Give one thing more, a grateful heart a grateful heart. With grateful hearts, we won't steal to get. With grateful hearts, we don't work to get. With grateful hearts, we work to get that we might have something to give to those in need. For we are His workmanship, people of grace people of grace. Well, Fred and Naomi woke up this morning in Visalia. They're in their 80s. They're not on the ranch. They're not in the home. But they're with their family. Because all their family right now is in Visalia. They're among their, those who love them, and those are the things that we invest in people. You can't put love to work except for people. You can't put grace to work except for people. And that's what our lives are lived for in Christ. Will you stand? Let me close in prayer. I want to remind you, I'm up 
in front along with others this morning, we'd love to pray with you. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? If you know, think about it some more because it's more than that. But I am glad. But if you don't know Jesus' love and you would like to know his love this morning, I'll be down here. So will others. We would love to introduce you to Jesus that this day might be the first day of the rest of your life. If you need to pray for yourself or on behalf of someone else, come. Let's pray to him who loves us so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son Jesus Christ and for your great grace. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit, new life that is ours, without break, continuing for eternity who you are to us and what we will become in you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' matchless name and all of God's people said, God bless you.